Well, we're, we're slowing down a little bit more than I initially expected to slow down, uh, just because there are some elements in the passage today that we'll take some working through, and, and, uh, and I don't want to rush things. It's nice to meditate on the Scriptures and not feel rushed through the Scriptures, so uh, we'll, we'll go a little bit slower. Um, but with that in mind, we're going to approach verses 19 and 20 in this way. Um, there is nothing probably more central to our lives than our relationships. Uh, we think of where we are today, and no doubt there are those people uh, in our lives who currently have or who have had uh, great influence upon us, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Uh, but where we are today is largely due to those relationships that we have had, that we do currently have. Uh, or to think of it another way, when we consider what we look forward to most in life, and even for those of us who, like to, uh, who might like to access our, our introverted side a little more often than others, uh, when we think about what we look forward to most in life, it often involves relationships, uh, doing things with the people who matter most to us. Or we think of where we are in our professional lives, and as the saying goes, getting the job is often about who you know. Our professional lives are deeply affected by relationships. Uh, so relationships are central, and they're central to our lives as humans because we have been made relational creatures by a relational creator. Um, God the Father, Son, and Spirit have been in perfect Trinitarian community in a way that transcends all created matter and stands beyond the measurement of all time and space. God is a relational God. And as His creatures, He's made us relational, not least of all as we consider the reality that we're made to relate properly, not only to one another, but to Him. Uh, God is the giver of life, and as the giver of life, we look to Him as our Lord, as our provider, uh, and because of our sin and rebellion against Him, we also look to Him as our reconciling Redeemer. So the God who existed in and of Himself in, in triune, loving perfection in the Godhead, created humanity, and, and while humanity has rebelled against Him in relationship to Him, the God we serve is a God of love and sent His Son to bring reconciliation to us. The gospel is a message of reconciled relationship because God is a reconciling, relational God. And as we look at the gospel of John, one element of Jesus' ministry that shines through so clearly is this relational reconciliation in action. Uh, of course, the events of, of the passion, of Jesus' arrest and suffering and death, those things all uh, gloriously and, 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 and soberly display Jesus' reconciling action in such a pointed way. He paid the price for our sins so that instead of standing condemned before God, we can be reconciled to God. We see the climax of God's reconciling love uh, in the passion account, Jesus' cross and, and then in His resurrection. And with that, now, we also see the priority of Jesus' relationship-reconciling purposes uh, in His intimate interaction with various individuals during His earthly ministry. We have pictures as we go through the gospel narrative. We have these scenes from Jesus' ministry uh, recorded in the gospels that, that, if we can put it this way, narratively display the great reconciling priority of Jesus for those who are, who are otherwise far from God. People like us who, who apart from trusting in Christ, uh, do not have life eternal to look forward to, but are separated from God by, by our condemnation because of sin. Uh, but of course, in Christ all that changes. So instead of this vast chasm existing uh, between God and us, in Christ we're brought near to God. Our relationship to our Maker is restored. And, and as we study John chapter 4, 
as we consider the interaction that's here between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, it's this kind of reconciliation of relationship priority uh, in Jesus' ministry that's put on display for us. So if we think back through the narrative a bit, we saw this first of all in verses 7 to 9, where Jesus is the one who bridges the great distance that exists between himself and this woman. Uh, So in terms of of the cultural framework of the day, and even in the realities of of her own sin, this woman was very separated from Jesus. Uh, Socially, politically, religiously, in terms of gender, in in terms of morality, in so many ways she was distanced from him. But Jesus is the one who closes that distance. He engages her in this conversation and pursues her as we saw in verses 7 to 9. And then like we saw last time, Jesus not only bridges that distance that exists, but He offers an extraordinary gift. He offers this promise of living water, uh, which is the promise of of the cleansing grace, this gift from God which brings us to to a position of eternal life and comfort and rest. And we saw that in verses 10 to 18 last time. And then as we get into our verses today, we come to a crucial aspect of this entire account where we see a a relational progression that's taking place. Uh, so, So not only is Jesus the one who's bridging the distance that exists, not only is Jesus the one who's offering this gift of cleansing that we need if we're going to have relationship with God, but here in these next verses we find this woman being moved now from a place of not understanding who Jesus is to a place of seeing Jesus as the one who at least has the insight that ultimately leads her to repentance So if we're thinking about this whole dialogue, we've had Jesus and the woman at the well in the distance, and we've had Jesus and the woman at the well in the gift, and now we can put these verses under the heading, Jesus and the woman at the well and the progress or the progression that takes place in her own understanding, uh, not only of her condition, but in an understanding of what Jesus is offering with this promise of reconciling grace. We have this progress that's taking place in her own process. And we, we indicated uh, the nature of, of that taking place in her life last time when we talked about the fact she's a dynamic character in John's gospel. In narratives, you have dynamic characters who change over time, or you have static characters who don't really change over the course of a narrative. The woman at the well, just like we in our Christian life are also, we're dynamic characters. We're, we're changing. And so that, that change is drawn out in a unique way in this passage. And so naturally, we want to pay attention to the developments as we find them here, because as we pay attention to what's going on in the heart of this woman, we're actually very helped to not only navigate things that, uh, that have gone on in our hearts, maybe historically, but we're helped in our own current progress of coming further along in our faith in Jesus. Because we remember that John's priority for us, is, as chapter 20 makes very clear, is that he's writing all of these things so that we would be believing in Jesus. John desires us to grow in our trust and our knowledge and ultimately our, our, our rest in the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, by trusting in Him, we have life in His name. So John is very uh, concerned with our own progress as readers. And so as we read about this lady's process, moving from really no belief to this place of, of recognition and, and at least further in her understanding of the significance of Jesus. She's not all the way there yet, but she's moving further in her understanding of the significance of Jesus. As we see that movement, we're helped in our own lives as we move as well, as we move further in our understanding of Christ ourselves. And of course, that's a need that resonates with us because we feel our own need for progress in our belief. 
It could be that we've walked with Christ for a long time and we feel those seasons of distance that occur in the life of our, of our, of our Christian walk. The times when we feel a little bit further from Him than we might otherwise and, and we wonder, what, what, what is this about? What, uh, how ought I to navigate this in a fruitful way? We feel that real distance that exists uh, in, our, in our hearts, even though Christ is the one who never leaves us. We feel ourselves far from Him for some particular reason. Or it may be that we're fairly new in considering Jesus, and as we're considering Jesus, maybe in a fresh kind of way, in a new kind of way, uh, we're, we're concerned with what it really means to know Him. Who is this Jesus, and what does it mean to trust in Him? I've heard about Jesus, but I don't quite get Him. I, I don't understand what's really so special or important about this whole notion of believing in Him. So we have these kinds of experiences, and again, as we walk through this narrative, a passage like this helps us not only identify uh, parts of our own process, but also uh, rekindle aspects of our faith as we're brought along uh, in our own progression by Christ. And so that's, that's what we're going to focus on today. In 19 and 20, we have Jesus and the woman at the well and the progression. In these verses, we have movement. And, and so what we'll do is we'll start with verse 19. And we're going to think about that verse under the heading, Increasing Clarity. Increasing Clarity is verse 19. Now, um, if, if, if we consider this narrative so far up to this point, it's fair to reach the conclusion that the woman at the well has not remotely understood who Jesus is. She has not had clarity. In the beginning of this dialogue, she asked the question, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So, so this lady does not know Jesus is the Jesus of John 3.16. God so loved the world that He sent His only, only Son that whosoever believed in Him would not, wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. She, she doesn't have clarity on the fact that, that she's not speaking to a mere Jewish man that might be removed from her because of social implications of, of, of various cultural elements. She's speaking to the Savior of whoever will come to Him in faith, Jews, Samaritans, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, but, but she doesn't see Jesus for who He is. And then that just continues as the text goes on and she asks another question in verse 11 where Jesus offers her living water. So, so he offers her the cleansing promise of salvation and eternal life. And instead of grasping the significance of that, she says to him, where in the world are you going to get this kind of water? You don't even have a bucket. Right? Not just that, but the well's deep. So, so what business do you have, Jesus, of talking to me about water at all? You're bucketless. So she doesn't see who Jesus is. And then in verse 12, it's evident again when she asks the question, really a question uh, for which she presumes a solid no for an answer. She asks, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? It's the who do you think you are question. You're not greater than one of the patriarchs of faith who, by the way, used to need this well too. Right? Of course, she doesn't know the answer is actually yes, that Jesus is greater than Jacob, but, but the woman's not seeing Jesus for his greatness yet. She's not seeing who he is. She doesn't have clarity about her identity. And then Jesus steers the conversation toward her condition of sin. Had her multiple husbands, the fact she's living with a man who's not currently her husband. And now in verse 19, having been confronted regarding her sin, something changes and it's a really big change. So, so in verse 19, she has increased clarity about who Jesus is. It's not totally total clarity yet, but it's increased clarity where if you look at verse 19, she says to Jesus, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Now, now we just have to take a moment and recognize what a huge jump that is. 
from where we've been so far. Because so far, the Samaritan woman has identified Jesus in three ways. Way one, you're someone who shouldn't be talking to me. Way two, you're talking about water, but you're at a well with no bucket. Way three, you're not as great as Jacob. So far, that's how she's identified Jesus. So up to this point in the interaction, the woman has kept Jesus in a significantly less than position in her thinking. The guy's not all there. Now, all of a sudden, we have this massive jump in her thinking. She moves from thinking that this strange guy without a bucket shouldn't even be talking to me. She's moved now to say, I see you are a prophet. It's a huge jump. And, and it may very well be an even bigger jump than we realize at first. So just, just think this out with me now. Throughout the Gospels, we see uh, in Jesus' ministry that people will reach the conclusion from time to time that Jesus is a prophet. It doesn't mean they totally understand who He is. In fact, it regularly indicates a lack of understanding. Uh, But for example, we read later in John chapter 7 that Jesus is teaching in the context of the Feast of Booths. And after His teaching in that Jewish context, we read that some conclude He might be a prophet. So so like Isaiah or Ezekiel, maybe Jesus is is a prophetic figure in our midst. That's what some would say. However, we have to notice how significant it is that a Samaritan woman here calls Jesus a prophet. And the significance of this is found in that in the context of of Samaritan religion, we might even call it Samaritan folk religion. So in in the context of Samaritan religious belief, the whole of what we would refer to as the Old Testament, so the Bible of Jesus' day, the Old Testament was not all recognized as Scripture by the Samaritans. They only recognized the first five books that Moses wrote to actually be the Scriptures. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That, that was the Bible that they would, that they would uh, affirm. And with that framework in place, their understanding was that the last true prophet was Moses. So, so they didn't count Samuel or Elijah or Isaiah. It stopped with Moses. And Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that there would be another prophet who would come. God would send another prophet. It was a reference to a messianic figure in Deuteronomy 18. And so because the Samaritans did not hold to the rest of the Old Testament, they believed that the only next prophet after Moses was this messianic figure of Deuteronomy 18. So they rejected all notions of other prophetic individuals in between, Moses and then the Messiah. And what does this woman say? She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, whether she has the full weight of Samaritan folk theology behind that statement, we don't know. But it is a very big deal that a woman who seems quite aware of the Jewishness of Jesus and the Samaritanness of her own heritage, it's a very significant thing that she, of all people, would choose the word prophet to refer to Jesus here. So so put all that together, and and it just makes the increasing clarity reflected in the heart of this woman that much more dramatic. She hasn't hasn't just moved from, here's a guy with no bucket who shouldn't be talking to me. Uh, She hasn't just moved from from that to saying, uh, well, here, this might be a prophet of God, maybe like Elijah. She hasn't just done that. That that would be a big enough move just by itself. But, But she's a Samaritan saying this with all the Samaritan theological baggage attached to the notion of prophet floating around. So, so while she may not quite be saying Jesus is the Messiah just yet, she's not quite there yet. She's going to have to have some clarity on that in a moment. Um, she's getting about as close as you can get. 
So, so the scholar Leon Morris, he's com- he comments on this and he says, for her to speak of Jesus as a prophet was thus to move into the area of messianic speculation. There's something there. So the woman's at least saying that, that there's, there's something monumentally unique about this man at the well now who's speaking to me. So there's no small thing that's gone on here. There's this increasing clarity, at least about the significance of Jesus. And so we have to ask, what happened? Right, why this increasing clarity? Well, we can start to answer that question when we remember uh, where we've just been in terms of the dialogue. So Jesus has just confronted the woman about intimate details regarding her sin, details which a stranger at a well would otherwise have no knowledge of whatsoever. Uh, Jesus has shown extremely intimate knowledge of this woman's life, and not just her life, uh, but, but even her life of immorality. So he knows the dark stuff. And, and we have to remember as we read this, back in chapter 2, when Jesus was faced with that crowd of disingenuous believers, John actually adds that little narrative comment so we, we know what's going on with Christ at that point where, where, where John tells us Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knows what's in men's hearts. Yeah. The, the unique knowledge of Christ has already been punctuated in John's gospel. And, and that knowledge, as Jesus exercises it in his ministry, it has a profound effect. And we actually saw that even earlier in chapter 1 with the individual Nathaniel, where Jesus says to Nathaniel, who you remember at first says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He, he doesn't have high hopes for this Jesus character he's about to meet. But Jesus speaks to Nathaniel, indicating that he has some intimate knowledge of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's response was, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Huge response. For Nathaniel, that's, that's quite a jump in clarity with regard to who Jesus is, and, and it's based, again, on this intimate knowledge that Jesus demonstrates. And it's the same thing that's going on here. The woman has been engaged in dialogue with Jesus, uh, during which time the, the intimate conditions of her sin have been addressed by Jesus, and as a result of Jesus' clearly very intimate knowledge, the woman's own clarity regarding Christ has taken this huge jump. You know, this, this man knows me. Right? He knows things about me. And even in knowing those things, he's still engaging with me and promising me this cleansing eternal life. You know, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And, and so in this, we just have to see the place of, of, intim, of the intimate knowledge of Jesus and the effect of Jesus' intimate knowledge upon the positive progress of belief in our own hearts. Jesus demonstrates His knowledge of us, and as, as a result, our own view of who He is is elevated. We grow in our understanding of Him. Now He's not just a guy who forgot a bucket at a well. Instead, we see that there's something profoundly special about Him. And, and I just wonder if that's something you've experienced in your, own, in your own life. Of course, we're not in dialogue with Jesus in His earthly ministry like, like Nathaniel was or like the woman at the well, but Jesus does still show Himself to be intimately acquainted with us. Uh, and actually, a main way that that happens for us is through, is through the ministry of the Scriptures as the Spirit of God mediates Christ's ministry to our hearts. I'm sure, I'm sure I've told you this before, but I've had it happen a few times where I've preached a sermon and someone will come and say something like, you know, this particular point you made, it just really, it really affected me. That's something I really needed to hear. And while that sounds like great encouragement for the preacher, <laughs> I have had myself, I've found myself on some occasions having to admit that I actually never said that. That's a great point, and I wish I would have said that. 
And it totally aligns with the text that we've been preaching. But I mean, I'm I'm manuscript. I tell you, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. But what does that represent? Well, that represents the fact that in the preaching of the Word, the Spirit of God mediates the Word of God to human hearts in such a way that oftentimes, even in a mysterious way, He can affect us with those er- in those areas where we need to be affected, so much so that we're aware of His intimate knowledge of us, and it affects us uniquely in those times. And, and often it happens in a, in a way that's not mysterious like that. Often it just happens through the direct nature of the preaching of the Word, or as you're reading the Scriptures for yourself, maybe in your morning devotional time. Through the Scriptures, Christ speaks and addresses something very unique and very personal in your heart. It's the living Word of God. Uh, it's the Word of Christ for us. And in those times, whether they're regular or whether they're, they're kind of odd at times that they can happen, we see Christ searches us by His Word and proves that He knows us. The Scriptures just hit home in those intimate kind of ways. Um, and, we, and we experience that. Even right now, it's possible to have a sense that the truth of Jesus is called to believe. As we study John's Gospel, it's possible to have a sense that the truth of Jesus is called to believe is being very particularly applied to your heart as you sit under the ministry of the Word. That is not an uncommon thing to have happened. That's how Christ works. He's, he's the one who intimately shows Himself knowledgeable of our lives, and that affects how we understand who He is. We're drawn out in our belief in Him as He speaks to us intimately through His Word. So we can fi- sometimes find ourselves saying something like, how can you know me, Lord, like you do? I, I may have been a bit resistant to this whole notion of trusting in you, but I'm, I'm so convicted or moved in my heart I see that there's something very unique about you in the way you so uniquely know me. And so as a Samaritan woman has experienced this kind of intimate interaction with Christ, she's had increasing clarity about who Jesus is as conviction about her own immoral situation has been addressed by Jesus and as the promise of cleansing and eternal life has been then offered by Jesus. And maybe you've experienced that. Jesus, I've kept you at arm's length quite frankly, thinking you're very strange. But but I can't ignore you now, the way your truth is penetrating my heart. So we see this woman is progressing in her understanding of Christ. She has increased clarity. Sir, I perceive that you're not just a man with a buck, without a bucket. I actually perceive that you're a prophet. So there's progress taking place. And then as we keep going in the text... The the increasing clarity of verse 19 now compels a a vital question. It's it's put as a statement, but the woman is asking a question there in verse 20. So in verse 20, we have the woman asking a vital question. In fact, I'll just read verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, now at first, this might strike us as a very abrupt change in the conversation. Uh, Jesus and this woman are speaking about cleansing and and hope of eternal life for all those who who are immoral, who have engaged in a life of sin. Uh, And all of a sudden, we now have uh, a theology class kind of question about worship. She asked Jesus, which mountain uh, the worship of God should be conducted on? Now, now a little bit of background here is in order. We can think about this because the Samaritans, remember, they only took the first five books of the Bible to be the Bible, remember? Um, So what the Samaritans did is they referenced the place where Abraham built an altar in Genesis chapter 12, which was geographically connected to Mount Gerizim. 
So, so they determined that the worship of God should be conducted there. It's the first altar Abraham built in the land that was promised to him. So that's where worship should take place. That's what the, that's what the Samaritans concluded. The Jews, of course, having the remainder of the Old Testament revelation, knew that the city of Jerusalem, the hill Mount Zion in that city, was the place where God had, had uh, instructed the temple to ultimately be built, according to His directive. But, but this was part of the big theological debate that existed between uh, the, the Jews and the Samaritans, or maybe at least the theological point of tension, is this question, where do we worship? It was a hot topic. And this woman it almost seems like out of, out of the blue, she brings this question up. Our ancestors, our Samaritan ancestors, worshipped on this mountain, this Mount Gerizim. You Jews say that that should take place in Jerusalem instead. Which one is right? And what strikes us at first is, is just how abrupt this change in topic seems. Jesus has been speaking to her about her sin in very personal ways. She is perceiving that Jesus is a prophet, something intensely personal with regard to her own growth in, in knowing who He is. And now there's this big swing from the subject of her personal sin and the cleansing grace of God to a century-long theology debate, centuries-long theology debate about where we're supposed to worship. It seems strange. And so some commentators will say here that, that the woman doesn't like the conversation about her multiple husbands and her sin, so she changes the topic quickly, and she picks a hot topic, so Jesus is thoroughly distracted from the personal sin conversation. So she's distracting Jesus from his evangelism program, or so some will say. But we can be pretty sure that's not it, for a couple reasons. First of all, the Lord of the universe and Savior of the world who lives with persevering determination up to and including uh, crucifixion on a Roman cross, does not get distracted in his evangelistic purpose. Right? We can just start there. That's, that's a quick, simple reason why the distraction argument for the abrupt change here doesn't work. But there's another reason we need to consider, too, why this abrupt change in this conversation. And the other reason for this abrupt change is that it's, a, it's not an abrupt change, it's a natural progression. So let's, let's just frame what's, what's been going on here. John tells us in the verse above that this woman and Jesus have a conversation about the area of sin in this woman's life, one area of sin. Now, whatever the history, she's been looking for satisfaction in relationships with men, now even living with a man who's not her husband. John shares that piece with us. But then down in verse 39... When this woman is later witnessing about Jesus to her town, uh, John tells us what she's saying as she witnesses. And she doesn't say, uh, Jesus told me everything about my sexual immorality. Her witnessing statement is, He told me everything I ever did. So while John records a brief frame of her conversation about sin with Jesus in the verses that come before, John also indicates that the particular sin around men in her life is not all they talked about. He told me everything I ever did. Right? That's her own testimony. Right? So, so clearly, we have a narrative indicator that their conversation was much more involved than is recorded in brief here. We have a snippet of it. Which means that the conversation went on for a period of time, including details we don't have. And, and, and instead of this woman seeking to distract Jesus from their topic, the nature of their conversation around her sin and the, and the promise of eternal life properly compelled her to ask this question next. 
if we, if we just think this out. Jesus has confronted her on the expansive truth of her sin, and He said there is the cleansing gift of God for you, and what does she wonder in return? Well, she wonders uh, what a properly repentant person ought to wonder. Tell me, you who I perceive to be a prophet, to be one who speaks for God, tell me then, how ought I to properly orient myself toward God? He gives living water to a sinner like me. I want to respond in a way that is pleasing to Him. So what is the right way to worship? I've got to sort this out. So you see, this question is not a distraction from the subject matter, but instead it's a proper reaction to the subject matter at hand as this woman progresses in her understanding of salvation. She's been confronted in her sin. She realizes that genuine repentance involves not just stopping the sin she's committing in her relationship with men, but it involves rightly reorienting her relationship with the living God who saves her. I want to worship properly, you see. So she's saying, in effect, okay, you, you know me, Jesus. You've illuminated my sin to me, and, and you've made it clear that there's promise of eternal life and cleansing for me as a gift. I want to have that gift. I want to be clean. I want to turn back to God. So help me turn to Him properly. How shall I worship? The Samaritans say it's over here on Mount Gerizim. You know, if I want to think through this and offer sacrifice for my sin, if I want to go through the context of worship as I, as I know it takes place, wh where do I need to go for this? Is it Jerusalem? Is it Mount Gerizim? How shall I worship? And Jesus will go on and help her with this at length next time, and we'll save his answer for next time because we want to be able to spend some meditative time on that as well. But for right here, we just have to see how reasonable a response this is as one progresses from a posture of not understanding Christ uh, to then responding properly to the free offer of cleansing that Christ provides. Because as I come into contact with a, with a genuine recognition of my sin, and as I come into contact with the gospel message that says there's cleansing for me as a gift from God, my response must be, how ought I then to turn to God? That's the response. What's reflected in this woman's life is a zeal for the proper redemption-inspired worship that accompanies a life that's been given grace. How ought I to worship? How ought I to relate to God, acknowledging His greatness given all He's done for me? So this is the big question of a heart that's confronted by sin and responding to grace. Given His grace for my impurity, how do I worship? How do I honor the one who's opened these, these cleansing streams to me? So often our response to being confronted by sin is very different than this. It's true of my own heart, I'm sure you can identify too. When confronted with sin, we have many responses that don't reflect the genuine zeal like we have in this woman's response. Uh, when faced with sin and the cleansing offer of the gospel, my response is not always first, how shall I then worship? Uh, too often responses are different than that. For example, when faced with sin, we can attempt to reduce it, can't we? I read you the quote a while back where the writer equated sin to, to nothing but a sneaky chocolate where you kind of know you shouldn't but not in a serious way. Sin is not really a big deal. We can reduce it. Or we might ignore it. You know, I just don't have time to deal with the implications of repentance right now. I don't have the energy to deal with, with turning my life around to the way Christ calls me to live right now. Maybe sometime, but for now, I'll just keep going. We can ignore sin. Right? Or we might make excuses for it. You know, well, I might feel the twinges of guilt. It's not really my fault. 
all these other contributing factors are present. It's this and that and, and the other thing over here is not really on me. We can make excuses for sin. Or we can simply condemn the notion of sin. You know, for somebody to talk to me about how my behavior is contrary to the living God, uh, that's just an archaic thing of a bygone era to speak about. The world's not so black and white anymore. Right? We can condemn the notion of sin. But what is this woman's response? Jesus speaks to her about sin, all she's ever done. He offers her the cleansing uh, gift from God that's found in the gospel, ultimately the gift that Jesus himself is going to purchase for her. And she doesn't say, this guy with no bucket is really crazy. She says, I perceive, Jesus, that you are a prophet, and I need to understand how to properly turn to the living God who's given me such a good gift. I want to turn from relating to the world around me in ways that are contrary to my maker and reconciler. I want to turn from those transgressing ways and honor God properly. Worship, of course, is the antithesis. Worship of the living God is the antithesis of sin. Sin says I'm the king of my own domain. I will do what I deem proper for me right now and forever. I will be in charge of myself. I will elevate myself, my opinion, my desire, all of those things. That's sin. Repentance says, I must elevate the godness of God in my life. I must live in such a way that turns to Him in a, matter, in a manner that's pleasing to Him. So what does it look like for me to turn away from self and toward the one who made me and extends the grace of the free gift of life for me? How ought I to properly relate to Him given the flowing streams of living water He supplies for me? So, so you see the progress that's reflected here uh, in this woman's life. Where things started, the woman is far from Christ, even we can say antagonistic toward Christ. But he speaks to her about the gift of eternal life, and he speaks to her about her need for that gift because of her sin. And she's convinced by his intimate knowledge of her transgression-stained life, and she's affected by the extraordinary offer of cleansing for that life, and she says, how shall I then worship? I wonder this morning, just as we reflect on our own posture of heart before God, as we reflect on our own movement in spiritual life, if this is a question that's on our hearts. Right? Check my own heart by this. When temptation to sin is present, when, when I give in and indulge in sin, when Christ, by His grace, convicts me of that sin through His Word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, reminds me of His cleansing power, what's my next question? Right? Is it, why don't you leave me alone, man, with no bucket? Or is it, Jesus, how then shall I live before God in light of all this grace? In the words of the hymn writer, his response to this grace is love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's what we want our response to be as Christ gives us grace to respond in these kind of ways. So, so here we have Jesus and the woman at the well and her progression. Next week, we'll think about Jesus and the woman at the well and worship. Let's pray together. <clears throat> so, Father, we're thankful for your word. and We know through your word, Christ does speak to us. The voice of Christ is heard. We pray that we would hear that voice this morning and be moved uh, to a posture of submission before your holy will and a recognition of your greatness. That we desire to live out every moment of our days in, in acts of worship to you. Uh, we want to respond to the great gift of cleansing found in Christ uh, in such a way that, that reflects the newness of, 
of life, the cleanness of life you grant to us as a gift. So please help us to this end, Lord. Help us progress as you call us to progress and as you promise to help us progress. We know that uh, you're the one who begins the work in our hearts and you're also the one who carries it to completion. So we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.